uh, everybody had their own prototype. In fact, in Cleveland, there were three plastic surgeons, but just looking at the patient, I could tell who did the rhinoplasty. So ladies and gentlemen, colleagues, residents, the public, to all our listeners, a warm welcome to this edition of the Rhinoplasty Podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. It's our final talk for March, proudly brought to us by Carl Stortz Instruments. Must be the reason why World Rhinoplasty Day was such a success. Anyway, um, Carl Stortz are great instruments. Now, if you listen to the end of the podcast, I'm going to give you an email address for someone you can email to get a discount on Carl Stortz Instruments. Um, so we've been very fortunate in the last three weeks to listen to the three medalists from the World Rhinoplasty Day, which Saucer organized last year. And as the final speaker for March, we've actually got the chief judge. It's such a pleasure for me to have the editor of the Aesthetic Plastic Surgery Journal and our chief judge, who's been um, one of the speakers at Saucer before, uh, Prof. Parman Gairon. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Cam, and I'm delighted to be here. So, Prof, you know, it's before we get into the topic, which I'm very excited to learn more about, about primary rhinoplasty, is take me back to 40, 38 years ago, 40 years ago, when you first came, started in private practice. How did you end up starting medicine and then from there going to plastic surgery and then this great passion for rhinoplasty? Uh, that's actually a very long question, <laughs> a long answer, and I'll try to make it shorter. Uh, I finished my medical school in Iran, and I came to the United States to uh, pursue a surgical field. From day one, I knew that I wanted to be a surgeon. In fact, I was initially interested in neurosurgery, but most of my patients were not really talking to me. So I, I thought to myself, this is not what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I changed it and went to the plastic surgery, finished the plastic surgery and did a craniofacial fellowship. But when I started my plastic surgery, uh, my one of my faculty members, uh, Robin Anderson, which you may or may not know anything about him, was... Uh, very famous for rhinoplasty, and he used to give a lot of talks at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, uh, he was uh, focused on the uh, rhinoplasty, and essentially what that's what he did. Uh, so my first rotation as a resident was with him. So he ignited my interest. So when I finished my craniofacial training, then I really was very comfortable. Uh, by the time actually I finished my residence, I had, I had done over 40 rhinoplasties uh, and was really comfortable uh, dealing with a lot of uh, noses, particularly patients who had craniofacial deformities. So I started with that. Then gradually my passion got really intense uh, for rhinoplasty and I started analyzing everything the way we do in craniofacial surgery, looking at the soft tissue response to the skeletal alterations and things like that to focus me on science of rhinoplasty because at the time, uh, everybody had their own prototype. In fact, in Cleveland, there were three plastic surgeons, but just looking at the patient, I could tell who did the rhinoplasty. I made a mission for myself to change that. And today, if you go to my website and look at my 20, 30 noses, not two of them are alike. Everybody has a different nose that matches their faces. So this, this is the way it started. And for the last 41 years, I've been completely focused on rhinoplasty. As I've, again, as you said, it, I have an immense passion for it. And I really think about rhinoplasty while I'm sleeping. So <laughs> it, it, it has really, it really has uh, occupied my mind all the time. It is amazing how difficult this field is and how precise you have to be to create uh, something that you can be pleased with or the patients can be pleased with. It is the most demanding uh, precision plastic surgery, unquestionably. 
Wow, that, that's big words for the editor of the aesthetic plastic surgery journal. So, Prof, one of your um, residents back in the day was Paula Fruz. So I've gotten to know Paul quite well. And he's actually going to be one of our guest speakers in May. We're doing a whole series on the young guns. And he speaks very highly of the training that he received from you before then going and doing a fellowship with Rod Rorick. Right. Yeah, he's a very bright guy, and uh, he also is extremely interested in plastic surgery. And um, uh, I think he is an upcoming star, and uh, uh, pretty soon uh, uh, we're going to be benefiting from his contributions to the plastic surgery, uh, rhinoplasty particularly. So, Prof, in the, if, if I might ask, if you... I mean, you've been able to have to balance this amazing career. What other things do you do when you're not thinking about rhinoplasty? I have a passion for golf also. Uh, that's my obviously outside of uh, profession uh, activity. Uh, I play tennis and golf. In the winter in Cleveland, we can't play golf. Uh, I do travel. Obviously, this year we were sort of limited in terms of traveling. Uh, but whenever I can get out of town, I go somewhere that, uh, warm that I can play golf. But when I'm in town, uh, um, I, I, I play tennis. So those are the activities. Uh, we have, Laura, my wife, and I have uh, uh, seven grandchildren, and we enjoy seeing them. Obviously, COVID has made that a little bit limited for us also. We have to wear masks when we see them, but we, we enjoy seeing them and uh, spend a lot of time with them. So this, uh, uh, and I, I am fortunate, actually, Laura and I are fortunate to have our three sons in town. And uh, uh, so family gathering is very, very important to me and uh, occupies a good deal of uh, my weekends. But that's great because so much of the world nowadays, people go all, all over. How many of your descendants are also in the medical field? Well, that's actually very interesting because I was the first one in my uh, family to be a physician. In fact, I was the only one from my siblings to even attend college. Uh, it was that uh, difficult for us uh, where I grew up. But I can, I, I, and I'm not exaggerating, there's so many physicians in my family now uh, that I can't even count because, and I, fortunately, I, I ushered them along. Uh, I brought many of my family members to the United States, uh, and those who could not him, they went to Turkey, somewhere else, and they studied medicine. So uh, a huge portion of my family uh, is in the medical field. And uh, uh, in fact, all of them are physicians. So, uh, so I'm fortunate uh, uh, to to guide uh, many of my family members to go in the right direction. Obviously, uh, medicine has changed tremendously. By by still, if I start all over, I wouldn't do anything differently. Wow, that's great. Eh? And and so how things have changed. I mean, COVID has completely changed. I think the way a lot of rhinoplasty training is done now. Um, do you have some things that you like about that and some concerns that you might have of what's happened in the last uh, 12 months or so of education, online education? Oh, I think uh, our symposia and communication is going to be changing forever it will be after this COVID because even our national meetings, I suspect if we are smart enough, we're going to make them hybrid. So people who cannot... Uh, leave their practices, uh, but they want to attend a meeting, can actually do that, even can do partially. And th that's the way they, they, they do it anyways. Very rare people go to the meeting and stay at the meeting uh, from uh, A to Z. Uh, but And they can attend the se se sections that they really enjoy uh, and be selective. I think this is the way it's going to be. Our, our national meeting are going to include broadcasting uh, uh, internationally so people can, and you know this because we have done this, you and I have done this before. The 
attendance is amazing, actually. Uh, the meetings that they used to have, probably 200 to 300 people. Now we get uh, 1,000 uh, people. So it really uh, has, uh, is going to change the way we communicate. Frankly, in terms of teaching, uh, it's not really that much different because we're sharing the same information, uh, same 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 PowerPoint. I have the PowerPoint ready. Uh, you and I are going to be sharing. Uh, so it doesn't matter whether I'm actually with you. Or obviously, the camaraderie is something that we're going to be missing. But I'm I'm going to be attending a lot of meetings. I already have a number of meetings scheduled this year in person. Uh, but also, I have a lot of meetings also scheduled. Uh, like this one uh, through uh, video conferencing. Uh, so I, I think we're going to be actually be able to disseminate information easier and more successfully internationally. Again, people who never came to the United States or never could never come to the United States, they're going to be listening to the United States presenters. And how good is that? So I, I think this is going to be a, this is going to be a very positive change. Yeah. So I think like coming to World Rhinoplasty Day last year, there was kind of suddenly this like flood of online presentations and talks and things. And I, I kind of came up with the idea of thinking, why don't we try and put these guys who like, as Rod Rorick says, world famous on their own websites, put these guys head to head and let them speak. Bring the scientific part of that by bringing in the editors of the journals. And with yourself and Travis and Alvain and Robin, it was, to me, what was important is that meetings should really have a strong scientific background as well. And, and I, I think we, we should caution that we don't just go and have talk just for the sake of having talks. I think it's really important to bring that together. How, how did you find that? And the fact that in World Rhinoplasty, suddenly, instead of the, the usual gang of really good speakers, we actually had people from around the world that we'd never heard of. That's another advantage of the, the, this uh, type of communication. Because not, not only people, as you said, people who uh, we, we never heard from are showing up and uh, contributing. And again, people who could never uh, come and see us or listen to us or be participating in meetings that we hold uh, from uh, South Africa or other places. Uh, they're going to be listening to, to us and learning rhinoplasty. I think rhinoplasty is going to enjoy a good deal of advancement. We're going to be helping the patients uh, to get better results that uh, is a uh, byproduct of uh, this ease of communication. Mm. I think another byproduct of all these might be some more revision rhinoplasties. Yes, yes, but also I think that revisions are going to be improving us. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because, so, because, so because of what we are communicating. You're right. Yeah. We um, lost. But, but, but you know what? That that. That is part of part of life, and we're not going to be. Uh, in fact, the more we communicate, the less chance for that. I mean, there's no way of eliminating revision in rhinoplasty. And if anybody anybody tells you that I don't revise my noses, that means that they are not analyzing their noses carefully, or they have their patients that. They accept anything for the face value, and uh, for them, any rhinoplasty result, any improvement is acceptable. We have patients in the United States go to the internet, analyze. They are equipped, actually, with the terminology that only is specific to high-level rhinoplasty uh, surgeons. They use those terminology because they are so educated. People are educated. We need to be more educated than them, and that's what's going to be happening. I think we will see a lot of good things out of the, this ease of communication. So, Prof, last year towards the uh, halfway through all our source of webinars, we actually sent out a questionnaire, and we had more than 500 people responding. And 
a lot of that was to do with questions around education through webinars. And what was the single most surprising thing is actually how few rhinoplasties the majority of people actually do. Um, that you think that the speakers who obviously do a lot, it's very common, but it's actually not that common. And there's been a lot of requests for some more basic teaching. So I'm, I'm quite excited that today you're going to walk us through the primary rhinoplasty. So if you want to share your screen, um, please go ahead. And I remind you that because not everyone's going to be able to watch the video, so when you talk, you can just, as if you're speaking to somebody who can't see what, what you're showing on the screen. Prof, thank you so much for sharing your screen. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about rhinoplasty now, primary rhinoplasties. Okay. Well, these are my uh, disclosures and I receive uh, royalties for his books. Uh, what I was telling you earlier, Cam, uh, to you that rhinoplasty is the most demanding operation and it really requires a commitment. Uh, you can't be a casual rhinoplasty. You can't do one rhinoplasty every several months and expect to have a result that is going to please you and the patients. Uh, but as long as you stay committed and keep doing and learning from your errors, you're going to get to a point that you're going to enjoy doing it and produce uh, more predictable outcomes. Let me tell you about this individual who came to talk to me about another a business, actually, an airplane. So while he was sitting across me, Cam, I'm just looking at his face and looking at his nose. He said, I'm talking to myself. Who did this nose? It looks horrible. So he, he got up to leave. I said, it was very nice meeting you. He said, no, doctor, we have met. You did my nose surgery early in 1980s. So I was about to melt. Uh, and uh, obviously, and I, could, I, could, I couldn't convince him actually to do some work on his nose to make it better. So the uh, moral story is that none of us is born a rhinoplasty surgeon. Even those of us who produce good results more, cons more consistently now, we have learned from our mistakes. So we need to analyze our care, uh, care cases and rhinoplasty results carefully. This is the same individual in 84, and this a kind of setup was actually, I should have gotten a really good result for him. But you can see uh, every part of this nose is flawed. So in contrast to this patient, and when you look at this outcome, obviously it is a, a congruous nose that goes with the rest of the face. And it is not evident, uh, obvious that we have done a rhinoplasty on him. And uh, uh, on every view, he looks, the nose looks natural. So that's what we, were, we, we are aiming for. And I have learned from my own mistakes over the last 41 years. And occasionally, even today, I get a result that I, I, I thought to myself, who did this nose? Uh, but Fortunately, those are extremely, extremely rare. So it boils down to a patient assessment and uh, understanding what the patients want. Sometimes the patients want something very different from what we are planning. And if we do their nose surgery and deliver a result that we're going to be happy with, doesn't necessarily mean that the patient is going to be happy. So it's crucial that uh, we understand what, what the patient's plans are, what, what, what we're going to be doing for them uh, that is going to please them also. And if we're not on the same page, we should not operate. And the psychological frame is extremely important. Yeah, there are some, uh, some warning signs, red lights, red flags that we need to be aware of. Um, 
patients who have minimal disfigurement, but they're they're really exaggerating what they see. Uh, uh, identify the problems with the sexual ambivalence or confused and vague motives, uh, or unrealistic expectations uh, to correct a problem that has nothing to do with the uh, nose or the history of poor establishment socially and emotional, having uh, uh, consistent emotional relationship, unresolved grief. All of these can help us to get to a patient uh, who is going to be unhappy with what we're going to be doing. And they blame uh, present uh, problems uh, on, on past surgeries uh, and sudden dislike of the nose at age 75. But the most common one is the hostility and blaming attitude. Hostility is not going to be towards us. It's going to be towards our staff. So it is important that uh, we get to know the patients through us and through our staff. So my, my, all of my uh, staff members are uh, uh, focused and they have their alarms on. And when we get a patient who's uh, exhibiting some symptoms that we, we believe that is not going to be a happy patient, then we do not operate on that patient. Now, sometimes I have violated my own rules, but I have regretted. And I have uh, regretted for weeks and months and sometimes uh, or years. Um, and those who have been seeing a lot of doctors and they can't find somebody, uh, a plastic surgeon who's, who are, who's going to deliver what they want uh, and or any indication of paranoia. Statement from the patients are very important. This patient actually told me uh, the other guy butchered my nose. I don't think it is, it's a butchered nose. So we need to listen to the patient. Uh, and this is a statement. I, uh, I would like my nose to go back where it was. Well, if you, if you were unhappy with the nose to start with, why did you have the surgery? And when I get a sense of discomfort from talking to the patient in terms of exaggerated feeling, I ask them to rate their noses from us uh, on the scale of one to ten, and I can. I have had patients, patient who told me that her nose was minus ten. Think about it. How am I going to get that patient to agree that the nose is closer to ten after such a statement? So it boils down to sense as a sense of comfort. If we're not comfortable, we should not be operating on that patient. Uh, I, when I uh, assess the patient, I, I also uh, listen to the history uh, and or uh, elicit some information uh, related to bleeding, easy bruising, prolonged bleeding, uh, and uh, discuss with them the potential use of uh, tranexamic acid, DAVP, uh, uh, because many of these patients may have von Willebrand disease. And uh, again, I, I ask the patients uh, to tell me what is that they see that they don't like. That's actually one of the first questions that, that I ask. Whether they had history of injury to their nose, breathing difficulty, pattern of nose issue, uh, breathing issues, what is consistent on one side or alternates, uh, alternates meaning is a, a turbinate issue. Uh, if it is consistently on one side, it's either a valve dysfunction or enlarged uh, turbinate. I'm going to be focused on that. History of sinus problems. And uh, again, uh, many we are not used to asking questions that can come back and haunt us. We need to know if the patient has history of sinus headaches, migraine headaches, and we can actually help these patients to get rid of their headaches, whether it's migraine or sinus related, as long as it is related to the surgical field where we're going to be operating, is good to serve the patients in different ways. I assess the patient's face very carefully. Starting observation while they're sitting across, across me 
about their lips, about their whole face. If you look at these three patients, all three of them have their lips open. And all three of them told me that they don't have any breathing issues. They're not lying. They're just used to what they are doing. And this is something, again, if we don't fix it, it's going to come back and haunt us later. And if we do the right surgery for them, as you can see in all three of these patients, their lips are going to be closed postoperatively. Earlier, Cam, I told, I told you that I, I don't take pictures. I have a photographer who does to take the pictures. She never asked them to close their lips, open their lips, repose. And you can see on those pictures, the lips are closed. So, Prof, I'm going to, for a second, just butt in here. I can still clearly remember the keynote speech that you gave in Versailles for the first international meeting of rhinoplasty society. I think it was 2017 or 2016. And you showed those three photos at that talk. And it struck me so much that here we are talking about rhinoplasty. And the first thing was, it's about breathing. And I, I often tell the story about seeing you give the talk where those photos, where their mouths are open, after surgery, their mouths are closed. So it's, I'm, I'm happy to see the same photos again. Well, actually, in most of my talks now, there are five of these patients, and they all told me the same thing. Uh, so, uh, yes, I think uh, if there's one thing that uh, I'm hoping the audience would get from this presentation, uh, number one, the first one, is this key uh, uh, picture of patients with the mouth open. But we, I also look at the quality of the skin. This is a patient on whom I'm not going to get a, a perfect outcome no matter what I do. Uh, I tell them to set their expectations lower because the skin is very thin. I also look at the facial alignment. There are essentially, there's nobody who has perfectly matching two sides of their face. So I, I analyze the face very carefully. Uh, independent on the nose first, then I look at the nose because if you focus on the nose, you're going to lose the overall picture. And the overall picture is the face where the nose is going to be sitting and we're going to match the nose to the other structures. So on this patient, as you can see, the face is shifting to the right side. Uh, the challenge is going to be whether the nose is going to be lined up with the midline of the upper lip, lower lip, the chin, which is, which is the choice. Uh, I usually line up the nose with, uh, with uh, uh, the next adjacent midline not necessarily with the chin, because the patients don't do that. Patients don't follow uh, all of the uh, segments uh, to see whether the nose is lined up with the chin or not. Uh, but most of the time, I'm going to actually try to convince the patient, not talk them into, but to convince them that they should have a genioplasty and we should move the structure around to, to align with the nose and we're going to get better results. But if the patient doesn't go along with that, I still operate in the patient. I, but a conversation ahead of time is going to set the stage uh, for us to be having good relationship with the patient. So the patient's not going to be upset that the nose doesn't match the uh, rest of the face. Uh, it's not lined up perfectly with every structure. Uh, and I look at the profile. There are patients who have prominent forehead, there are patients who have receding forehead. Uh, that's going to obviously make a difference in what we're going to be, how deep the radix is going to be on these patients. We look at the intercantal distance and uh, probably that's the, the second most common thing that uh, most important thing that I want to talk about. And there are patients who have intercantal distance that is too wide and narrowing their noses actually is going to be having a positive result on their faces or augmenting the nose is going to have a positive result. While there are patients who have narrow intercantal distance, augmenting the radix or doing osteotomy and narrowing the, uh, uh, narrowing the face, narrowing the intercantal distance 
uh, which is an optical illusion, is going to be a disservice for those patients. Um, uh, we look at uh, we look at the profile, and uh, again, you can see the lip closure. Uh, and also, I'm going to look at the, the, how tense this lip, lip is. And in fact, releasing this tension is going to close the lips also. Uh, but I also am looking at the position of the domes in relation to the anthracoidal septum. When this patient smiles, we're going to see the end of the septum. What's going to be happening? The minute we remove the extra cartilage from the dorsum, which represents as a caudal hump, we're going to lose a significant amount of tip projection on this particular patient. I look at the malar bones, and if they are hypoplastic, I'm going to augment. I'm going to look at the jaw position. This is a patient on whom rhinoplasty alone is not going to do much to the, to the face. But if we do orthognatic surgery at the same time do a rhinoplasty on this patient, we're going to get a better result for them. I, I, I do assess the chin on every patient who comes for a rhinoplasty, and I think the best line to follow is this Rydell's line which connects the upper lip to the lower lip and should touch the chin. And every time we do that, we're going to have a pleasing relationship between the nose and the uh, chin. Here's a patient who has a prominent nose, prominent chin. And if we reduce the nose projection, we're going to make the chin to look more prominent. If we reduce the chin, we're going to make the nose look more prominent. Uh, a balance is going to come from correcting both of those. Intraoral examination is extremely crucial. Here's a patient who has crossbite, as you can see here, because the uh, palatal arch is very narrow. And usually people who have narrow palatal arch, they have high vault to the palate, which is sitting in the nose. And if we do a, we do a reduction of rhinoplasty on these patients, invariably we're going to make their noses, make nasal airway uh, narrower. And it is crucial to be conservative on these patients, reduce the size of the turbinates if we need to, straighten out the septum uh, to uh, take away this negative effect that palate has uh, on the nose. Uh, so it, it, it may sound uh, simple and uh, frivolous. It, it really is not. And I do have over the 10, 41 years, I do have patients that complain about the breathing. And I knew that I took care of everything. Then I looked at the palate, they had a high palatal vault that I missed. Now, we, one of the crucial aspects of assessment of a patient is for rhinoplasty is to ask them to smile. When they smile, we're going to see many things, including the fact that the tip is going to drop, as you see on this patient. We're going to see tip ptosis. Look how much this tip uh, looks different after this. This is actually a secondary rhinoplasty patient. Second, a horizontal line is developing under the nose that we could not see uh, before she smiled. The nostrils are widened, widened differentially. One side goes up more so than the other side and one side widens more than the other side. Can we do something about it? Absolutely. Actually, we can release the levator when we do an ALA-based resection on the uh, patient. We also need to look at the gum show, as you see here. If the patient has excessive gum show, using a Kalimala strut is going to help that patient. 
On the other hand, if the patient has inadequate incisor show, using a colimalostrot on that patient is going to have adverse effect. So on that patient, I'm going to suspend the medial crura from the antrocardal septum rather than using colimalostrot. So I can rotate the tip up if needed, if needed, rotate the tip up and at the same time, lift the lip up slightly. By, with one operation, I'm going to achieve uh, two goals at the same time. And the next step is to look at the nose. You see, so far, I'm not even focusing on the nose. I'm looking around everything else uh, on the face, uh, but not the nose. Now I'm ready to look at the nose. I'm going to look at the nasal bones on the front view. When the patients have <clears throat> long, wide nasal bones like this, they're going to be ex uh, experience significant change in the airway. So this is another patient that we need to be careful uh, about what we're going to be doing. I'm going to look at the deviation in the nasal bones. These are asymmetries, and one side is significantly wider than the other side. So on this patient, I'm going to need to remove a wedge of bone between the nasal bone and the septum in order to be able to reposition the bones equally because one side, on one side the nasal bone is sitting further lateral than the other, and when we remove that hump, we're going to see that asymmetry more vividly and we'll remove a wedge to make sure that it would allow us to move the bones uh, medially properly. A wide mid vault like this is going to require adjustment on this patient. I may not even remove the hump if there's no hump. I'm still going to open the dorsum because I need to remove the extra portion of the uh, distance, extra portion of the cartilage that's sitting between the dorsum and the upper or dorsal portion of the septum and the upper lateral cartilage. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to narrow this nose. Uh, I'm going to carefully analyze uh, the tip configuration. These are the different versions of the uh, uh, abnormalities that we, we can see, a bulbous tip, asymmetric <clears throat> pinch tip, primary pinch tip, wide secondary tip, uh, uh, and uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, significant bulbosity and divergence of the lower lateral cartilage. Each one of these patients going, is going to need a very different uh, management. I look at the Ehler base very carefully. This is my patient from early 80s again. And you can see, I failed to see this asymmetry that I talked about earlier. This nostril on the right side was higher, I missed it, and was wider, I missed it. So uh, it, it is overall, it's not a bad nose, it's a slightly wide tip, uh, but overall, not a bad nose. But it is marked with the asymmetry of the yellow base that I could have uh, uh, prevented. Hanging conimala is something that we need to notice on the front view, particularly on the profile, and deal with it, uh, whether it is related to the LR retraction or uh, the malformation uh, or malposition of the lower lateral cartilage that we are seeing so much uh, level discrepancy between the ELA and the Kalimala. We need to figure that out and deal with it correctly. And on the technical aspects, I'll discuss all of these, what is done for each one of these. <clears throat> the radix should be deep, about four millimeters on a, on a male, about six millimeters on a female. So a takeoff point for the dorsum is a little bit deeper for a lady. And uh, we, we need to assess the dorsal hump. Again, this is another patient that when he smiled, I could see the antrocardal septum. When we see it, this part of this amount of cartilage 
that is going to be removed. Two things we have to be careful, extremely careful about. Number one, we're going to have an open roof. We're going to need spreader graphs. We need to be prepared for it. The second is that the minute we remove that dorsal hump, we're going to lose a significant amount of uh, tip projection on this particular patient. The length of the nose should be assessed, and I actually have a separate, total separate uh, assessment uh, and analysis uh, and written articles about this as to how we decide about the length of the nose. Obviously, uh, many patients from Middle East have long nose uh, and secondary rhinoplasty patients, particularly those done uh, before the 70s, 80s, uh, they're going to have a configuration like this that we need to be prepared uh, to elongate the nose. And uh, tip projection uh, has to be about uh, two-thirds of the length of the nose. And again, there are more, more specific uh, data that I have uh, related in relation to how we set the projection on these noses. And whenever the medial cura are violated, we're going to have configuration like this with LR retraction and loss of tip projection. Uh, again, another hallmark of uh, noses that were done in the 80s. LR rim base relationship. Uh, Gunter has a superb article and I wrote uh, an amended uh, article related to that. It's called uh, LR rim deformities. And uh, it was in 2003 published in PRS. And we talk about this drawing from the nostril, uh, posterior portion of nostril to the anterior portion. This line bisects the uh, oval shape distance between the LR rim and the columella. And by designing, by drawing this line, we can decide what needs to be done, what is wrong. And you can see this patient has a retracted columella and hanging LR. This patient has hanging columella, retracted ALA, totally opposite of configuration. And LR rim and LR base position is uh, extremely important. And uh, uh, it is uh, what is going to give the patient uh, better appearance. Here's a patient who has a, a retracted columella and uh, uh, the base uh, is retracted and the base is, again, on this patient is still hanging to some degree. That can be corrected. The nasolabial angle, actually, we, we, turn, we have written articles. I did. All many uh, uh, teachers in the field of plastic surgery talked about 90 to 115 degrees. There's not such a thing. We have done two studies. Ideal, an ideal nasolabial angle for a male ranges from 93 to 98, average 95. I, an ideal nasolabial angle for a female ranges from 95 to 100, averaging 98. Two separate studies that we did using lay individuals as well as plastic surgeons who were the members of the rhinoplasty society. So when we talk about 115, doesn't doesn't fit. When I talk about 90, it really is not the right number. So again, average 95 for a male, a female, male and 98 for a female. Uh, on the LR base view, we can see a whole host of uh, uh, abnormalities. First, you can see the columella is inclined to the right side. And if I, if I guess why, I'm going to edit that because the lower ladder cartilage was transected or removed on this side because you can see that uh, the patient lost, uh, lost the projection on that side. The left side is still okay. Size of the nostrils, symmetry of the domes, and uh, uh, often the foot plates protrude 
I'm going to narrow those. And I also look at the patients. That was obviously the basilar view. This is the overhead view. It is the most reliable way to decide about the direction of the nose, direction of the nose. I do this intraoperatively. I never, ever finish the rhinoplasty outcome without going to the overhead position, assessing the nose. And I can tell you, can't tell you how often I see a little bit of asymmetry in the tip that I could not see from the surgeon's view. I see a slight asymmetry or deviation that I could not see from the surgeon's view. On the right, I'm a right-hander, so I'm on patient's right side. Uh, so this is a crucial view, again, to minimize the postoperative complaints. Okay, so now when you, when you're in the operation, you've come to the, the head of the patient and you see it's still not what you want it to be. And if you, for example, already closed up your columnar incision, will you then remove everything and go back and get that tip and the straightness of the nose? If my problem is the caudal septum that is deviated, absolutely, I'm going to open the nose. If um, I see slight asymmetry on the projection of the tip cam, what I'm going to do is take a look at the projection that I like better from the basilar view. If I like the projector, uh, nicely projector side, I'm just going to take a, and usually these are very minor asymmetries. I'm just going to take a small round piece of a lower ladder cartilage and deliver it over the dome uh, on the side that the dome is slightly lower. But I also want to make sure that by doing so, I'm not going to lower the nostril, meaning when you add to this area of the nostril, to shorten that side, we're going to have asymmetry in the basal view. Our patients see that, and our patients complain about that. So uh, otherwise, I'm just going to open the nose and adjust the length of the lower lateral cartilage on, on, that, on the side. Often, that is the consequence of slight asymmetry in the length of the lower lateral cartilage is that we may have missed. Uh, I may have missed. So I'm going to overcome that by adding tiny piece of cartilage. But if it's more than that, I don't hesitate taking down my incision. But also, what I can do often, what I do often, actually, before I close the incision completely, I put one stitch there because I do that when I use a superative suture anyway. Uh, I use one stitch, I'm going to open it regardless. I look from the overhead view before I complete my closure in the conimella. And that way I can actually reduce the potential for uh, postoperative asymmetry. And I had my share of those. And that's how I learned uh, to uh, look more carefully intraoperatively, three-dimensionally before I give up and decide that this nose is completely symmetric. So examination of the nasal valves this is an absolutely crucial part of rhinoplasty. And we're, going not, we're not going to see that unless we ask the patient to breathe in forcefully. It is not going to be apparent in, while the patients are going to be sitting across us all the time. Look at this patient. Is trying. I, I asked her to breathe forcefully. You can see how the nostrils collapse. So there is such a thing as a primary, primary collapse of the external valve. Primary collapse of the external valve. And it invariably is the consequence of cephalic orientation of the lower ladder cartilages. So this cartilage is supposed to be going this way, is going this way, and it is making this area weak. So you can see actually that there's not much of nostril here, this patient went. Uh, and I do this on the front view, and I also ask the patient to tilt the head back and breathe in deeply for me. And you're going to see that. You're going to see this when this patient 
breathes in. So this is, and both patients, and you can see from this configuration that this is too wide because this patient has cephalically oriented uh, lower ladder cartilages. And again, one more time, you can see how crucial it is to, to look at these patients, asking, uh, ask them uh, to breathe in deeply, inhale deeply. And this is the front view uh, uh, showing the change in the upper lateral cartilage side. Look how this sinks in when this patient takes a deep breath. So this is a secondary collapse of the uh, collapse of the internal valve. Obviously, so there are surgical techniques to uh, correct this, and we're going to be talking about all of those, and they're going to be part of my uh, surgical plan. And additionally, when you look carefully, when this patient does this, we are seeing a sort of a hemi uh, inverted v, v deformity that this patient, in fact, if you look carefully preoperatively also, there's a little bit of weakness here. This uh, dorsal line is not in continuity. So I have even, before this patient breathes in, I have an idea that this patient is going to have a collapse of the lower laterals, uh, it's a collapse of the internal valve. Now there are patients, primary patients, who do this to tell us, this is the way I can breathe. Without it, I cannot breathe. This is a patient who never had surgery. But even in this patient, you can see how narrow that mid-vault is. It is because the upper lateral cartilages do not have support. So if I'm not doing a rhinoplasty on this patient, I'm still going to insert spreadographs here to widen the internal valve or strengthen the internal valve or use uh, a, a lateral crudo uh, st uh, uh, stand uh, that is going to actually separate the up, uh, ladder, upper ladder cartilages and the lower ladder cartilage. However, these can also be confirmed and differentiated from the enlargement of the uh, turbinates or septal deviation by examining the valves this way. If I block one side and spread the uh, nostril, the patient uh, breathes more uh, uh, easily, uh, then that patient has a valve dysfunction. However, if, would you, if I do this and the patient is still having breathing issues, then I'm going to look at the internal uh, mechanical obstruction of the nose or could be related to allergies and other, um, other factors. I do analyze every nose with life-size pictures, life-size pictures. And um, this is something that I... Uh, it goes back to my craniofacial training. I did it for craniofacial patients, and I carried this to uh, rhinoplasty patients also. And the steps have been published in the uh, PRS in 1988. It hasn't changed. The only thing that has changed, my photographer has com computerized these. Now we use the computer software. She does use computer software. And she does the analysis. I confirm it. I uh, review it at the end of the analysis. And uh, this is what, how, this is how I decide what is that I'm going to get, do uh, with each patient. And again, this is the article that uh, talks about nose analysis uh, uh, using, uh, using cephalometric principles. And when we do that, is going to give me a tool as to what is that I'm going to be doing intraoperative. This is the steps for the front view that are in, the, in that article and is going to tell me whether the nostrils are too wide, they're asymmetric, whether the nose is deviated or not. Look at this nose. This is her midline. And when you look at the nose, half of the nose, most of the nose actually is on the right, patient's right side. 
It is a secondary rhinoplasty patient, and I'm going to reposition everything based on this analysis. So there's a guide. And on the profile, it's going to show me exactly what I'm going to be doing, down to quarter of a millimeter. And you can see on this uh, overlay, which I share with the patients and tell them, this is obviously a pencil drawing, I can't guarantee yourself. This shows me uh, my direction as to how much I'm going to move the tip up uh, or nostril down and to decrease this discrepancy between uh, the columella and the nostril in, down, expressed onto again, quarter of millimeter. And um, when I do this, sometimes it helps me to identify patients who are not going to be happy with the results. Okay, I commonly, I'm commonly asked if I use morphing, absolutely. I use every tool of communication with the patients. I'd rather to stop operating on a patient who's going to be unhappy with what I'm going to be producing. Uh, and that would be more common problem for me than the patient claiming uh, that you showed me something, but my nose is different. In 41 years, I only had one patient and tens of thousands of noses. I had one patient who wanted to see the pictures and I showed her pictures after the surgery. Actually, she was happy after I showed her pictures, life-size pictures, how close we were. Uh, she, she wasn't unhappy with the rhinoplasty outcome, but she actually, she became happy after she saw uh, what the nose looked like before. So uh, I, I don't think it's a problem to show the picture. I don't think it's a problem uh, to share uh, the vi videos uh, or uh, morph morphs. And again, when we do that again, you can see how the, uh, not only the nose is going to look pretty, uh, the face is going to look pretty because many of these patients identify, identify the, uh, I identified from the clinical analysis, but I show them in the pictures what the chin would look like and they are happier with the outcome of uh, chin surgery as well. So, Kim, I think uh, that, uh, what, what I suggest that we do, if you agree, uh, I obviously uh, uh, we want to continue, but we can continue the surgical technique in another session because obviously we, we only have five minutes to go and uh, uh, we may not be able to talk much about the technique. And I can actually, what I can put up is a whole video of uh, rhinoplasty, it was a composite video of several patients because not every patient needs the same tech, uh, every, everything that we do. Not every patient needs everything that we do. So what I've done is actually create a composite uh, video of A to Z that I, de I do on every patient. And maybe that's something that we can do another time because otherwise we're going to have uh, very little. Uh, no, to, no, uh, I don't want to rush this. I think it's, it's, it's so important. So what? I, let's definitely, so for the listeners out there, we're definitely going to do another podcast. What I want to ask you, Prof, this, how long does it take you for your first visit for the rhinoplasty patient? Because now in, in, the, in the office, when they do your consulting, how long are you consulting a patient for? Because we've gone into great detail about this first consult. How long does it take you? Somewhere between 20 minutes to half an hour. Yeah, uh, the secondaries, secondaries could be 45 minutes, and we scheduled them for 45 minutes. Um, in, again, in so many years, I probably uh, ha had to gone over half an hour, maybe a dozen patients, maybe even not that many, uh, that our conversation took longer than that. Those are the patients that I actually most likely was digging in further just to make sure that I'm going to be able to please that patient. Awesome. Well, Prof, thank you very much. To the listeners out there, you guys who've listened to the end of this first part one, we're going to call this part one, we're going to do part two later. Um, I'm going to now share the email address with you for getting a really cool deal on Carl Stortz Instruments. 
So um, the email is s.mazibuko at carlstort.coza. So I'll spell that out for you because that's South African. So it's s.mazibuko at k-a-r-l-s-t-o-r-z dot c-o dot z-a. So please uh, send a message to Sizwe and see what he can help you with, with instruments. Prof, wow, thank you very much for your time. Um, I, 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 Paul always said to me with my visits to the States, I've got to come and visit you. And I just haven't ever been able to do it, but I, I, I would do anything to be a fly on the wall and look at you examining patients and really having such a fine eye for everything. So thank you for sharing with, with so many, on, on behalf of so many of the listeners around the world. I think this has been one of the best podcasts we've had thus far. It's my pleasure, and it's great seeing you in the video, virtually, actually, again, and I look forward to seeing you in person. Great. Thank you very much, Prof. My pleasure. 